This is the Photography Podcast on photography.ca, episode number 115, Monitor Settings and Color Spaces and Other Sources of Confusion, an interview with Joe Brady. Hey there, photo lovers. How's it going? And welcome to the 115th photography podcast on photography.ca. My name is Marco, and as always, we're coming to you from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. For today's show, we have an interview with uh, Joe Brady, who is the color god and in charge of a webinars for a Mac Group US. Joe's been on our podcast before. A few years ago, we did a podcast uh, with him where he talked about uh, calibrating your monitor and calibrating your printer. And we also talked about, you know, settings in Photoshop, how to get accurate color. And today we have him back, this time to demystify some of the concepts that uh, people are having. When people set up their monitors, they often want to know about luminance values, and they want to know what color space to print in, and they want to know about gamma and things of this nature. And Joe's going to demystify all of that for us. We're not necessarily going to talk about calibration this time. We'll refer you to our other podcasts, uh, 62 and 63, which talks about you know how to calibrate and things like that. This podcast is more to uh, demystify some concepts that uh, people have trouble with. And given that it's been a few years uh, toward the end of the podcast, uh, Joe gives his recommendations on uh, good calibrators and uh, printers and monitors. Before we actually get into it, I'd like to thank uh, Mikey88 for his comment on our last podcast, number 114, where we had an interview with uh, Patrick Rochon, who was doing some 360-degree light painting. As always, posting comments uh, directly in the blog, photography.ca forward slash blog, is the preferred way to get them, as it's just so easy for me to find the comments and credit the people. So thanks so much. Given that the podcast is about 30 minutes long, let's just get right into it now. And I'd like to welcome a really special guest uh, to our podcast. Uh, this is Joe Brady. We're uh, interviewing right now. And this is actually the third time Joe's done a podcast with us. A few years back, he talked to us all about uh, calibration, and he also talked to us about uh, the dialogue boxes within Photoshop to assure that you're going to get accurate printing. So before we get into today's podcast, which is talking about color and color spaces, welcome back to the podcast, Joe. Thanks so much for doing this. Hey, Marco. Good to hear from you again. It's uh, hard to believe it's been a couple of years. Yeah, actually, I think it's been three or four. But wow. uh, anyway, time flies. But as long as you've been having a good time and I've been having a good time, all is good. Absolutely. Cool. So uh, for today's podcast, I thought we'd actually get into maybe some basic to advanced color concepts. You know, I got a new computer uh, not long ago, and that required me to, you know, check into the color settings of my monitor and things like that so that everything talks to each other properly. I was hoping you could talk to us about initial monitor settings. You know, what should your monitor be set at in order to calibrate it well? People are often doing, you know, research on the net, and, you know, they'll, they'll read that your monitor should be set to 65 500 degrees Kelvin. It should have a gamma of 2.2. And then other people are suggesting that, you know, these things have to be adjusted somewhat. What's your take on this general concept of, you know, setting up a base monitor for calibration? Are there base settings, especially if you have more, let's say, a medium to higher end monitor? I was wondering if you could talk about that. Sure, there are base settings. Uh, there's a however to this, though. Some of the new calibration devices uh, completely take control of all the settings where you don't have to touch them. Uh, they use something now that's something built into the new monitors called automatic display calibration. And what happens is the software is, is able to talk to the monitor. 
and find out what it's doing. And it can make all those changes for you right in the background automatically. So that really makes life a lot easier. That said, yes, most monitors, the vast majority, and, and, and you'd have to have something weird for this not to be the case, should be set at 6,500K. Now, there are some people that say, and they're wrong, by the way, <laughs> there's some people that say, uh, there's a couple of labs that are still preaching this, that you should set your monitor for 5,000K because that's what you're looking at your prints under, under a 5,000K daylight. And that is actually wrong. And the reason is because monitors have a native white point. What that means is there's a, there's a color temperature setting that they're comfortable with. And the colors and the tonal range over the entire spectrum is going to be best at that native color temperature. While it's true, you can bring a monitor down to 5,000K and have your neutral be clean at that color. The problem is it messes up colors on either end. Uh, so it's not a good place to be. And very strangely, and I'm not sure of the physics behind this, but for some reason, when you view an image on a calibrated 6500K monitor, it actually matches a print viewed under 5000K light with your eyes. Because, you know, one's transmissive light where you're looking at a backlit display, and the other's reflective light. And for some reason, and there are white papers on this, if you're really bored and you have, want to read 40 pages of the <laughs> physics of this, uh, there are papers that will discuss that. Okay, good to know. Let's move on to gamma for a second. Maybe we could talk about what gamma is really quickly and what the native gamma should be. Most sites and information that I research on the net suggest that gamma should be 2.2. Can you describe what it is and what your opinion is on that yeah, concept? Ga gamma is a contrast curve. Uh, we, our eyes don't see light from light to dark in a linear fashion. So gamma is a contrast curve so that uh, the response of our eyes to, to shadows and highlights is matched on the monitor. So simply put, 2.2 is what everybody's using now. A couple of years ago, uh, Macs were set for 1.8. That changed probably about five years ago where Mac switched over officially to 2.2. So now everybody's 2.2. Good to know. Now let's also talk about luminance. Um, you know, a few years ago when we talked about, you know, monitor calibration, uh, you mentioned quite clearly and emphatically that most monitors are too bright, that most monitors are meant to do a bunch of different things, and that's why they are so bright. And typically for producing a good photo, um, your monitor needs to be set less bright. And that's why the higher end monitors, you know, actually have very good control over, you know, how well you can set them or how well the calibration software sets them. Them. Can we talk about luminance? Is there a standard luminance? What should your monitor be set at? There's not a standard. There's a range because the luminance of your monitor is going to depend somewhat upon the ambient light that you're in. Now, I'm sure your listeners, I'm sure many of them have had problems where they send prints out either to a lab or on their own printer and they come back dark. Well, 99.9% .9 of the time, that's because their monitor is set too bright. And if you really think about it, your monitor is where you're making your editing decisions. So if your monitor's set too bright and it looks good on the screen, well, it's the image file isn't really that bright. It's your screen that's adding that brightness. So then when you go out to your print, it's just going to print how it really is behind the scenes, which is much darker. That said, you'll see luminance settings that run from uh, 60 or 70 all the way up to three or 400. And you see these specs on the boxes on the monitors. Oh, we'll do 350 lumens. Well, that's hogwash because you can't use that. Uh, you need to have something that's in a range from 80 to 120. 80 is the best because at 80, uh, your monitor is giving you the best transitions and shadow details and keeping your highlights without clipping. However, 80 is pretty dim. So there's compromises. And it's going to be from 100 to 120 um, 
it's measured in candelas per meter squared if anyone cares. And that's going to that's gonna come down to your ambient light. Again, a nice thing about the new calibration systems, um, and, you know, you guys know I specialize in the X-Rite stuff. Yeah. Uh, from the top down, the new i1 Pro 2, uh, the i1 Display Pro, which is uh, like about 249 bucks US, and the Color Monkey Display, which is about 169, now have the ability to constantly monitor ambient light. And if an adjustment goes, if the ambient light changes beyond a certain amount, it will actually adjust uh, the brightness and the contrast of the display so that it's always accurate for, for what you're going to be doing when you go out printing. Nice. So again, not a fortune, actually. You know, um, last time we did this podcast, things were more expensive. Things are coming down in price. Absolutely. Uh, something like the Color Monkey display, which really is, is about as plug-and-play as you can get. Uh, you plug the thing in, you hang it on your monitor, and it has that ADC, that automatic display control software in it. And you just let it go. And it will it'll automatically set your color temperature, your gamma. Uh, it, you can either set a number for your luminance or you can say, hey, I'm not sure what I should be at. You tell me, and it will actually take a measurement of the ambient room light and plug that in and do everything. When it's done, it saves it, puts it into place, and you're done. That's it. But at the end of the day is the calibration software. Let's just talk about this luminance value for another minute if that's cool. Sure. Um, the calibration software, is it going to aim to get you into that 80 range, or is that something that you're going to want to set by yourself? It's going to give you an appropriate setting. It's going to give you something in between 80 to 120. Say, for example, if you're working in a dim room and you're doing photo retouching, which is generally a good idea, uh, the software is going to give you 80. Uh, where it's going to give you a higher number is if, you're, if you've got a window, you're in a very bright room, uh, you're in a cubicle kind of situation with a lot of overhead lights, uh, maybe, and, and you don't have a hood available for your display, then it might go up to 120. But it's going to go for the lowest that it can based on what the ambient light is. Okay, cool. Good to know. You know, we're not going to talk about calibration just because we talked about it last time, and I'm, I'm sure it's still valid, though we will talk about that for a few seconds at the end, sure. if, if the method we did a few years ago is still valid. But if someone is just calibrating now uh, for the first time, and they're getting these luminance values, and they're bringing the luminance value of their monitor lower, one thing that they're going to notice is there might be a color shift to their monitor, and their monitor might be darker. Can you chat about that for a couple minutes? Sure. Um, it's, it's not actually a color shift on the monitor. It's a color shift for how our eyes perceive it, uh, because the monitors, when they're turned up real bright, look to us to be a little bit on the blue side. And our eyes adapt to that and think that's neutral. That's great. Uh, if you bring the brightness down, they do have a tendency to look a little dimmer and a little yellower to our eyes. Uh, but you will adapt to that. Your eyes will adjust to that very quickly. Now, the w one thing is people want sometimes to have different brightness settings. Uh, for example, you're, you're doing your photo editing, but then maybe you're doing video editing or you're doing something for the web where you do need that brighter setting. So you have two choices. Um, you can have multiple profiles. Which and the profile will include that that brightness in it, or uh, say for example, if you know that if you have a up and down brightness button on your computer, and after you do your calibration, you can look at it and you can see how many uh, how many detentes or how many steps down from all the way bright it set your monitor at. So for example, on my laptop, I've got ten spaces. Uh, for, for dark to light. Well, I know that after I calibrate at somewhere between 80 and 90 candelas, that if I come down between 4 and 5 
spots from the top reading, that is where that puts the monitor. So if I'm in a situation or I'm doing something that needs the monitor turned up all the way, I can just turn it up all the way and then when I go back to my photo editing, bring it back down. Good to know. But in general, people should expect that to their eye, at least at the beginning, you know, if they haven't calibrated before, after they calibrate, the monitor will likely appear a little dimmer and a little yellower, but your eyes will get used to it quickly. Exactly. And by the way, that effect is much less now with the current monitors. Uh, like, for example, Apple has their new retina displays, uh, the higher-end NECs, the Azos, the Samsungs, the, some of the new HPs and Dells. And again, it's a price point. You know, if you spent $700 or more for your monitor, uh, they will all do this, and they're all very good at making those adjustments without any color shift. Awesome. Good to know. Let's talk about color spaces a little bit, if that's cool. Everyone's heard of color spaces. Very few people understand what the heck they are. They know, or they may have heard that the web works in sRGB, you know, but they have the ability on their cameras to capture in RGB or sRGB higher end monitors. Sometimes they can emulate one of the two color spaces. Can we talk a little bit? Then there's also something called pro-RGB. Can we talk a little bit quickly, the abridged version Mm -hmm. perhaps, about the three color spaces and how they work together. Sure. Okay. Color spaces are can be a little bit of a rabbit hole. <laughs> so I'm going to try to keep it simple. Cool. Yes, the web works in sRGB. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of especially the color experts, they poo-poo sRGB. Well, get over it. Because the web works in RGB. And labs, when you send prints out to a lab, their machines work in a space that's very close to sRGB. If I could interrupt you for one sec. When you say the web works in RGB... In, in sRGB, what does that even mean? If you think about it, let's see, a, a good analogy would be how many crayons in your crayon box? sRGB is the smallest. However, it does two things. One, it, most monitors are sRGB. That's all the colors they can show you. So let's say you've got, uh, there, you've, let's just make the numbers easy. Let's say you've got a thousand crayons in, that, in your sRGB box. Sure. That's how many colors you can display on your monitor. Now your file may have more. In fact, your file, if you shot it off of today's cameras, is going to have more color um, in, than sRGB. And what the computer needs to do is make all those colors viewable in the space that it's got. So in essence, you've got a big bucket of color, but you've got a smaller bucket when you go to your monitor. So some of those colors are going to move. Okay. So that's kind of where sRGB is. Now, a lot of people, again, people poo-poo it, but it is a standard for a lot of things, including the web. Uh, again, because the vast majority of monitors can only show you colors in the sRGB space, including the new Apple Retina displays. Uh, as advanced as they are they're, with their resolution, they're still sRGB monitors. So when people say the web works in sRGB, that's because the monitors that people use to view the web are primarily in sRGB. Correct. Okay. Let's talk for a second about those monitors that are not in the sRGB space. Um, Some of the monitors that you sell, higher end, are RGB. Can you talk about that difference? Yeah, there there are some of the higher end graphics monitors. Uh, You mentioned you specifically, uh, you now own an AZO monitor yourself. Yeah. Uh, I've got two of them in my studio. Yeah. They are Adobe RGB displays, which means they can display a greater range of color. So why do I care? Well, if I'm going out to stuff for the web, then it's not really giving me any benefit. However, when I'm going out to my printers, printers nowadays can print a much bigger color space than sRGB. Uh, I, I have a, in my studio, I've got a Canon 6350. It's a 24-inch printer. It's got 12 ink cartridges in it. Because of all the additional inks, the amount of colors that can be produced is much greater. So I can have my monitor on Adobe RGB, 
And my printer is going to be able to print those colors. In fact, my printer can actually print colors beyond Adobe RGB. So that brings you into ProPhoto RGB, which is the biggest color space that we have available to us in our softwares. There's some pluses and minuses to ProPhoto RGB. The pluses, yeah, you got the most crayons. You got millions of crayons in your ProPhoto box. The downside is you can't see some of those colors. They're going to get they're going to get moved on your display. Uh, and the software, if you're in Photoshop, for example, it's automatically going to clip those colors back down into whatever the color space your monitor is. So if I had to give you kind of a set of guidelines of how you want to be set up, and, and a good friend of mine, Eddie Tapp, uh, convinced me he, to this is the way to go. I started adopting it, and it definitely works. If you're doing your photography, you're capturing RAW. Oh, and as a little sidebar, you mentioned Adobe RGB and sRGB on cameras. Yeah. That's only if you're shooting JPEGs. That Adobe RGB and sRGB setting on your camera is only for JPEGs. If you're shooting RAW, there is no color space. Right. The camera's basically capturing the entire visible light spectrum. And at that point, you then give it a color space when you either process it in Adobe Camera Raw or Lightroom or whatever it is you're using. Once it gets converted from a RAW file, then it gets a color space. To maintain the best color that you've got, the, because you never know you're going to buy, when you buy one of those new printers that have got 12 inks, you can take advantage of some of these colors. Work in ProPhoto RGB. Set, set Photoshop for ProPhoto RGB. Lightroom, by the way, doesn't give you the option. It always works in ProPhoto RGB. Or a slight variation of ProPhoto RGB. But I, that's, I, that's a little too technical. Let's not go there. Okay. I thought you could just for 10 seconds, though. You, can you not set the color space in Lightroom to be either ProPhoto RGB, RGB, or sRGB? No. ProPhoto in the uh, Lightroom in the background always works in uh, a, a minor, a slightly modified version of ProPhoto RGB. It's actually called Melissa RGB. You can export when your files as any of those color spaces. Okay. Again, remember, Lightroom, all the files are raw until you export them. So they don't really have a color space. So all of the operations you're doing in Lightroom are happening in the ProPhoto space. If you then export that into, into Photoshop for editing, it's going to go in as a PSD or a TIFF. At that point, it's going to get a color space. And that's what you can set in your export settings, whether it be Adobe RGB or sRGB or keep it in ProPhoto RGB. So work in ProPhoto. You've got the best color space. You've got the most tonal range. It gives you the most latitude to do edits without hurting the file. Because at the end of the day, the file is the file, right? If you're going to put it on the web, then something happens to it. When you're going to print it, then something happens to it. But the file is the file. Why shouldn't it have the most crayons in its box? Right. Now, then when you're actually going to export, in most cases, when you go to export, you're going to export to sRGB. Now, when I say export, you're sending a file somewhere else for some reason. And if you're sending a file somewhere else, it's either going to be printed out a lab, which, again, they want sRGB, or it's going to end up on the web, which is sRGB. If you're printing yourself in your own studio and you've got a good printer, then just leave the files in their native format, which is going to be 16-bit files in ProPhoto RGB, and the printer will do what it needs to do to print the best color. If you are printing it yourself, that is. Correct. Right. Okay. Let's talk just for half a second about those few people like myself, and, and maybe there's more and more of them, that, you know, have an RGB monitor, and I guess they work in RGB, and then they, you know, put stuff on the web, because everyone puts stuff on the web. So one thing that I'm finding is, 
you know, my monitor is normally properly calibrated. I, I work in the RGB space. Uh, you say RGB, you mean Adobe RGB? Adobe RGB, I'm sorry. Yeah, I work in the Adobe RGB space. Mm -hmm. And then when I put things on the web, I don't necessarily turn them into sRGB on export, and they tend to look okay. You're a little bit lucky then. Oh, uh, really? It, it, yeah, it has a tendency. It depends on what files you're doing. Uh, if you're working in Adobe RGB or Profoto RGB and you don't do a conversion when you send something out to the web, then you're losing control of how that, uh, that conversion takes place. And what can happen is you'll find that your image might darken slightly or your reds will start to go slightly brown. Um, and, and this would require kind of a screencast webinar thing to show where the whole rendering intense thing comes in. Yeah. Um, and if you... If you're dealing with just color space rendering intents, there's only one. It's relative color metric. And we're probably going off into the – we're getting, we're heading down the rabbit hole here. <laughs> uh, so I don't want to go that far into it. But you're, if you're working in Adobe RGB and you're sending stuff out to the web, if you want control, if you really want to see what the image is going to look like when you go out to the web, then you should convert it to sRGB. Cool. So let's move on now. Just because it's been a few years, last time we spoke, uh, you had recommended the Epson 1880. I'm wondering. Oh boy. If, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's been a while, and now, like you know, I I was lucky enough to get the Epson 3880 maybe a, a year or so ago, and that's an awesome printer. I'm wondering if you could do some recommendations on you know printers, monitors, and you know the calibration tools, which of course uh, you know what the good ones are because you sell them. Sure. But um, maybe we, we could just talk about recommended, you know, maybe lower end to higher end of each of them: monitors, printers, and uh, calibration tools. All right. Well, there's a lot of good stuff out there, but in general, yeah, um, I I am a fan of both the Epson and the Canon printers. Yeah. And what's remarkable nowadays is you can buy a $79 printer that's going to produce amazing things. Now, I do create custom profiles for my printers. And, and what a custom profile does is it kind of takes a picture of how your printer prints colors so that when I look at it on the screen, I get a print that looks like it did on my screen. Sure. Um, now, I'm still using a printer that's actually got some, some years on it as well. I've got an Epson 2880. That, uh, in fact, I've got two of them that I still love. Uh, for my larger stuff now, I've switched over to, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a Canon IPF 6350, which is a 24-inch roll-fed printer. Uh, the thing I really love about the new Canons is they are so fast. Uh, they are much faster than any other printers I've had. And when I'm printing a bunch of big prints, it really helps. Off the top of your head, what are we looking at? Uh, a couple of grand? Under? Yeah. Yeah, you're looking about uh, between 2000 and 2400 Okay. Uh, for the for the thirteen, uh, the 2880 is a thirteen inch printer. Um, they're they're somewhere between five and seven hundred bucks, uh, and they will certainly produce uh, what would be considered a gallery quality print. For me, it's nice having a twenty four inch roll printer uh, because I can do sixteen by twenties as a standard competition print. And since I am primarily uh, a landscape photographer. For me, landscapes just don't cut it on small prints. You know, the size matters in that case. So that's what I do my printing on. Okay. I myself can recommend the 3880. Uh, do, you, do you like that printer as well? I, actually, I used to have one, yeah. Say yes, Joe. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a great printer. Uh, just when I went larger with the uh, Canon, it became redundant. 
Right. No, I got it. Yeah, the, the 3880, if anyone wants to know, it's um, it does a width of 17 inches, which, you know, could spit out uh, 20 inches on length, but uh, Joe actually likes the width at uh, 20 better. And, and I see his reasoning for it. If if you got some bucks, uh, you Well, may, again, you may again I'm a landscape one. photographer. Yeah. Uh, I do a lot of panoramics. Yeah. So I might have a 20 by 40 inch or a 20 by 48 inch print. Got it. Cool. What if someone, you know, if you, if you have to choose one that costs just a few hundred dollars, two to three hundred bucks, do you have a recommendation in that in that range? I hate to, to waffle here, but they're they're all good. Uh, all the Epsons and all the Canons in that price range are really good printers. Uh, if you're printing on glossy or luster stock, uh, they are really good at matching, uh, provided you got a calibrated monitor. They're really good at matching what you're seeing on your screen. Uh, the only time where it gets a l- potentially a little dicier, or if you really want to fine tune, is when you get into the fine art papers. Uh, when you get into cotton rag papers and some of the matte papers, uh, Somerset velvet, uh, some of the new Ilford. Ilford's got some gorgeous new cotton rag papers that are just showing up. For those kind of papers, I like to create a custom profile because your printer is affected by both temperature, humidity, and altitude. And it has, it has an effect on how the ink is put down on the paper and how it dries. Uh, and you're gonna, you're, you can find some changes there, but it's more noticeable on fine art papers. So when you create a custom profile for your environment, basically you're getting a snapshot of exactly how your printer prints color, and it will match perfectly. Okay, because at the end of the day, even though like that printer may help you out a little bit by creating their custom profile if their head office was if their manufacturing plant was in the desert and you're not in the desert then like you just mentioned environmental factors are going to be different yeah i've 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 experienced it personally the most in higher altitudes okay Uh, you know most of the the manufacturers they're making all their stuff at sea level with with a kind of a decent humidity Uh, a couple years back i was doing a seminar in colorado springs which is the base of colorado springs is around seven thousand feet and uh, I noticed that my, my prints were a little bit off. And I did a custom profile. Uh, and there's a utility on the Mac called the ColorSync Utility, where you can look at profiles over top of each other. Yep. And when I compared the factory profile to my custom profile, it was very different. Uh, apparently, it was either because of the condition of the printer or the, uh, the altitude. But all those things are variables, which, which again, is one of the reasons why it's not a bad idea, especially if you're going to be printing your own stuff, to have you know hardware that can actually profile the printer as well. And the least expensive device that will do that is called the Color Monkey Photo. Okay. They're in the $400 range, uh, and they will do the monitor calibrations, and they will also create custom printer profiles. Awesome. Let's, uh, let's end with monitors then. Um, if you have to choose or recommend a couple of monitors for people, what would you be choosing these days? Uh, well, if your budget is unlimited, yep. uh, not everybody's is, uh, if money is no object, then the, uh, the ASO, the uh, Color Edge monitors are still, still the Rolls Royce of monitors. Uh, okay. They're just, they're, they're amazing displays, uh, although they've come down in price as well. Uh, the HP Dream Color is a very nice monitor. Uh, the NEC Multi-Sync uh, PA series. Uh, there's a 301W, a 271W, and a 241W that are all very good. I haven't seen them around lately, uh, but Lacie had the 526 and the 324i that were very nice. Uh, the Dell 2711 Ultra Sharp uh, and the NEC 2490 and 241, are, they're all very nice monitors. Azo has two flavors of monitors. There's the Color Edge series and the FlexScan monitors. And their FlexScan monitors are, you know, they started around the $700 range, and they're really, they're really phenomenal monitors. So I, I, if the, the problem is if you get one on your desk, you'll never be able to go back. Yeah, 
I've been using it, you know, I've, I've had one now for about three years and it's, uh, it's just a joy on my eyes and it's a joy to calibrate. And it, when I do calibrate, you know, just, I guess it's a plug for you guys, but when I do calibrate, I find that, um, the new calibration is, is rarely very far from the last one. It's, it's not always identical, but it's, it's rarely drastic, drastic. Has that been your experience as well? Or sometimes you find they go quite off. No, they, they don't go. In fact, uh, azo monitors, if you calibrate them like once every three months or so, uh, you're still going to see very little variation on them. Yeah. Uh, it's because they, they have a hardware calibration system inside the monitor that has the lookup tables for all the colors actually in the monitor than, than relying on the video card. So they're much more stable over time. The ones that uh, you sell, though, um, those are actually only... we don't sell any anymore. Oh, you don't sell any no, of the have, have monitors? No, no, we have no official relationship with any monitor people now. Well, I guess uh, so. It's even better unbiased advice. Than... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm. If it was me going out and buying another monitor, uh, as as cool as the new uh, uh, Apple Retina displays are for how they can display images, uh, I would still pick an ASO. Yeah, just because those are going to be naturally less bright and they're just going to be easier easier to do photography with in general or well the other thing is that they're extremely consistent from corner to corner and edge to edge there's a there's a new software system called i1 profiler in fact you can use it you mentioned you have an i1 pro you can actually uh, use it with that and what the i1 profiler does is it allows you to take readings around your screen to see how uniform the brightness and the color temperature is from edge to edge it actually takes nine readings and you'll be amazed at how bad your monitor is when you get down like into the lower left-hand corner. How much of a color temperature and brightness change there is versus the middle. I did the same thing on my ASO. And for example, I might have been uh, candelas-wise or lumens-wise, it might have been 300 points lower in the left -hand, lower left-hand corner. And the color temperature dropped about 250 degrees Kelvin. The same test that I did on my ASO, I think it moved seven degrees. Wow. Yeah, it's a big you know, difference. And, and yeah, so it's it, there's very little variation from edge to edge. So you don't have to worry about, you got to make sure the, that the part you're editing is dead center in the monitor. Right. No, that's good to know. And I, I can actually uh, attest to this. You know, I'm, I'm looking at my monitor right now and certainly my eye sees no difference between the corners and the center. Um, it all looks very uniform. And uh, after a few years of using the monitor, um, it's a joy to you. So if you do have the bucks and, uh, you know, especially if you do a fair amount of, of profiling and you do a, a fair amount of your own printing, geez, you spend your whole day looking at a monitor. You know, if you can possibly, you know, save up for um, a higher end one, the color edge monitors are going to be in the $1,500 range more. Yeah, but the, yeah. yeah the, you know what, though, the flex scans, which are are just that far away they're almost they're, they're really that close to the color edges and they're about half the price they're in the you know, 750 to 900 range okay not terrible not terrible no. and no. you know when you compare it to uh any any of the other name brand monitors really when you look at the the specifications and now don't get hung up i forget i said that forget the word specifications uh, because specifications lie. They're like statistics. Yeah. When you look at the materials and the construction and the performance of the monitors, there's a reason that the NECs and the Samsungs and the LACs and the HPs and the Dells are all in the same price range because they're all using the same kind of quality materials. So that's the reason that they're $750 and up. Good to know. You know, again, at the end of the day, if you're spending, you know, $1,500 to 3000 some people are spending $5,000 on their cameras, even though they don't know how to use them. They're spending $5,000 on their cameras. You know, it makes the most sense. If you have five grand to burn on a camera, you know, spend 700 plus so you could edit your photo properly. It only makes sense. Something I always say is, and, I, and you just 
paraphrasing what you just said, I see everybody out there with these $2,800 camera bodies and $1,700 or $2,300 2.870 to 200 lens. And then they have some discount monitor and they're wondering why the color of their prints is off. Or they have a discount printer as well that, that yeah, they bought at yeah. Walmart for like $60. <laughs> Where do you think the weak link in that chain is? Yeah. Yeah. It's not the camera. No. Good to know. And, uh, you know, just to, to end, uh, Joe, if people want to find out more about you and your work, uh, where can they find you? I've got a lot of stuff going on. In fact, uh, and as, as every, probably everybody says this, my website in, is in need of a major update. Uh, I just released a new training DVD on landscape editing in Photoshop CS6, uh, which is not on my website yet, uh, but uh, hopefully that'll change in the next week or so. Okay. Uh, it's just simply JoeBradyPhotography.com. Uh, I've also got some interesting workshops coming up. We're doing one in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, the end of March. And we're doing a week in Tuscany, Italy in October. Ooh, sounds good. Sounds good. Is that link uh, on your website as well? The links are there. Uh, the full details will be – we actually just nailed down the villa that we're renting uh, in Tuscany. So uh, if anybody's interested, just send us an email and we'll get you all the details. Awesome. Appreciate you doing this as always, Joe. And uh, maybe our next podcast, maybe we will focus on rendering intent. Yeah, I'd be curious <laughs> to see how we can talk. I'll have to think about that one ahead of time, how I can discuss something very visual just with words. So, uh, But it, it's an important point that for anybody doing Photoshop or Lightroom editing on, on how to do that. And perhaps, you know, even though it will be like an audio podcast, perhaps we could have like a couple of just supporting pictures that I'll put in the show notes that may help. Absolutely. So that way, you know, it'll be at least something visual as well. Happy to do that. Awesome, Joe. Appreciate uh, your time as always, and uh, please enjoy the rest of the day. Marco, always a pleasure. Good to hear from you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And I'd like to thank Joe Brady one last time for sharing all that great knowledge with us. You can find out more about Joe and his own work at JoeBradyPhotography.com, and he's got some lovely galleries there, so I do recommend that you check it out. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and I hope you picked up a tip or two so that your color photographs are even better. And now with this new knowledge, just get out there and keep on shooting. Bye for now, everyone. Thanks so much for listening.